Well, today we're continuing our series called Pillars. Uh, Pastor Mark says he does this about every single year, but it's focusing upon four individuals throughout time that have had a significant role in who we are as the church. So he chooses somebody out of the New Testament and the Old Testament, somebody out of ancient time and a modern individual as well. And and, uh, today we're going to be talking about John Wycliffe. And he was like 1330, he was born, but has played a significant role in our lives today. Let's open up in a word of prayer. I, I really believe that every time we come expecting God to speak to us, every time we prepare our hearts to, to come together in community and expect God to speak, he does something. And so let's come with an expectancy today. Heavenly Father, we open our hearts and our minds up to the guidance of your Holy Spirit through your word. And Lord, we thank you for individuals like John Wycliffe that had such a significant role into what the church is today, to the fact that it is all around the world, and the roles today that we play in putting our foot forward into what you would have us do for the church. Guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. The summer of 89, a bunch of us from youth group, we were from Green Bay, Wisconsin, including my cousin Scott. We all got together and we drove all the way across Wisconsin, south of Minneapolis, to a music festival called Sunshine. It's kind of like the old music festival where it's like five, six days long and hundreds of, hundreds of tents are all up in a field and they put porta-potties out and everybody smells and, and it was a great time. So we went, we went, we had a good time. I don't know, there were about 12 of us that piled into two cars and put up one or two tents and just piled into the tents and just had a great time. I was about, I was about 17 years old. My cousin Scott was 16 and we took our two cars and, and we had a great time. The last night was a Saturday night and it was old school Christian band. So it was DC Talk and White Heart. So old school Christian rock, right? And we had a good time together. But just as DC Talk was finishing their concerts and tens of thousands of people were there, the, the skies just opened up with rain, right? I mean, just, just sheets of rain came down. And we were in the camping area, we were ankle deep in water. Right, So we're like, we're not spending the night. Everything we have is soaked. We packed up everything, put them in the car. We jumped in the two cars, piled in, soaking wet, all of us, and got on 94, and we just wanted to go home. You know, It was probably about 1 o'clock in the morning by the time we got in the cars. It was just pouring rain. My cousin Scott was in front of me. Interestingly enough, my cousin Scott, my best friend growing up a year younger than I am, lives in Random Lake. Uh, He moved down to Random Lake, just up the street from where we purchased a home in Fredonia. And uh, Scott got out in front, and I said, get on 94, and and, uh, I'll just follow you. And we just drove through the night, and the rain was just pouring down. I mean, it was one of those things where you're on the highway, and you're just watching the bumper in front of you just white-knuckling it all night long. And we're going along. It's the middle of the night. It's probably 4 or 5 in the morning, driving on Highway 94, And that's when we passed the big sign that said, Welcome to South Dakota. Yes. For those of you directionally challenged, we had gone the wrong way on 94. Right? So I I flashed my lights when I saw it. Scott pulled over. He came out with all the excuses and everybody out of the car and just chased Scott through the woods, you know, just... 
He still claims today it's not his fault, and I, I probably should have invited him here today to defend himself. We're on 94. It was about noon by the time we pulled back into Green Bay, all very tired, still very wet. But it's interesting how, with all good intentions, it's very easy to get off course, isn't it? It's very easy, with all of our good intentions, to get off course. And if you think back to that early church, those first few centuries, they had all kinds of good intentions. All kinds of good value of what would come. And actually, starting in about the third century, they had to come together with those good intentions and establish some very important theological tenets. And that's where we get the creeds today, coming from the first seven councils that were so essential, which essentially seven times the church came together over about a 600-year period of time and said, no, Jesus is God. And we owe a ton to that early church for being willing to fight for those things. But over the centuries, there became some some drift, some directional changes that had happened in the church over time, and God would raise up individuals to kind of create a course correction. To say, hey, with all your good intentions, we've gotten off base a little bit. We've gone in the wrong direction. And I believe God raises up those people throughout time. I think a big chunk of the Old Testament, you see that. You see the, the nation of Israel going through a period of drift, and God raises up the voice of a prophet to create course correction, right? This is exactly what John Wycliffe was, born about 1330. God used him in a very significant way to create some course correction that today... We, we experience the changes that have happened in the church as a result of him. Born 1330 to a, to a sheep farmer in Yorkshire, he, at 16 years old, headed to Oxford. And shortly after being there, about two, three years after being at Oxford, studying, beginning at age 16, the Black Plague came through London, killing off, they say somewhere between 30 to 50% of the entire population of London died as a result of the Black Plague. And it was in this environment, right? I mean, COVID has nothing on this thing, right? I mean, it's just totally different. Out of that event, out of that experience, right, he comes to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And he commits his life to the study of Scripture. He transitions right from there to, to being a priest and eventually goes right back to Oxford and becomes their most popular teacher. It's one of those teachers at school that everybody loves. He was so popular that his way of teaching, his way of understanding Scripture still today, and his commentaries still today, are being used at Oxford. They consider him to be the greatest professor they ever had. And he would live his life teaching and being a priest out of that great university. But his students followed his teachings so faithfully. And the teachings that he would come up with, man, they just they flew in the face of the church because he was speaking of course correction, predominantly in the area of access to God. There were so many teachings that in order to come to God, you needed something in between you and God. 
you needed an intermediary, and we see that language heavily in the Old Testament, how God would use priests, and you couldn't come into the Holy of Holies because there was a curtain separating. But when Jesus came, now we had access to God, and, and yet the, the old church had developed kind of these intermediaries, and, and John Wycliffe would come forward, and he would be speaking about change, about allowing the common man access to God. So much so that a lot of his students began the practice of not, not being spiritual leaders from the church building, but on the streets, speaking the common tongue to the common people. Because the only language spoken in the church was Latin. And so people didn't have even access to understanding most of what was being taught. John Wycliffe would be called the morning star of the Reformation. The morning star, in other words, the first light that comes at the beginning of the day. 150 years later, the teachings of John Wycliffe would be picked up by Luther, and he would nail his 95 thesis to the wall or to the door at Wittenberg. And that 95 thesis changed and brought up what we call the Protestant movement because Martin Luther was protesting the same things John Wycliffe was teaching about, that we can have access to God. Wycliffe would move towards a, a huge reformation that would be happening. Though he was never killed, those who followed him would be killed by the church as apostates. Today I want to just talk about three focuses that, that John Wycliffe really fought for and that today we can reflect upon how important they really are to our lives and maybe even reflect upon how much we participate in that access to God. First, the first course correction had to do with accessibility to prayer. To the early church, in order to come to God, you needed somebody to pray on your behalf. So it was a priest or, or, uh, or a, a, a saint, or for that matter, Mary. You had to go and have an intermediary between us and God. A common man could not talk to God. The common person off the street did not have access. Though the word of God is very clear, Hebrews 10.19 makes it very clear that the work of Jesus Christ opens the opportunity for us to come to the Lord. Verse 19, therefore, brothers and sisters, followers of Jesus there, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. There's a reference there to to actually the old tabernacle in the Old Testament where there was a curtain separating between the common man and the presence of God. Confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is the, his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with a full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. We can come to God as children of God. We can come and we can pray. We don't need anybody to pray on our behalf. But you can have a conversation with God today. No matter what it is, your, your relationship with Him is open. You can talk. He's listening. He'll talk to us. But even then, and I think even today, there are some false barriers to this idea of prayer. 
And the first is having to do with shame. Back then, there was that sense that I can't talk to God because of my sin. I can't go before God because of my sin. And even today, I, I know that sometimes there's a sense that I don't want to talk to God because I know, I know what he's going to say. Because maybe I'm not living like I should. Maybe I'm not walking as I should. Maybe I've slipped away from the relationship that I truly wanted to have with the Lord. But Romans 8 tells us if we are following Jesus, that that shame does not need to be a part of the relationship. Romans 8.1 Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you've come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior... No matter how bad of a week you've had, he's waiting to talk. He's waiting for a conversation. He's waiting to come close to you. No matter where you are, whether you're in your car driving to work or laying in bed at the end of night, whether you're at your lunch, at, the, at, your, at, your, at your work, wherever you are, God is wanting that conversation. No matter how hard the conversation is. I think it's beautiful that we have a time of prayer, and we're going to have one at the end of service today. I think it's wonderful that Pastor Mark and others, Pastor Mitch, were available to pray with you. But did you know that coming and praying with Pastor Mark or Pastor Mitch or myself is no different than turning around and praying with the person behind you? We're all followers of Jesus, and we can pray together and come, no matter how hard our need is, we can come straight into the into the presence of God with our needs, no matter how hard it is. Sometimes we don't know what to say, and that barrier is there when we just don't feel worthy of it. We don't know what to say in the midst of our pain, or even in the fact that we've done things we're not happy with. We had, uh, in Ukraine, during our service, we had uh, our elders, uh, the couple's that were on our leadership team, around the outside of the sanctuary where people could go during worship while we were worshiping, going for prayer. And Christine and I would often be off to the side. And I'd often say to people, you know, it doesn't matter what is experienced in your life. If you want somebody to pray with you, I'm here. There's nothing you can say to me that's going to shock me. I've been doing this a long time. But I can tell you, church, I'm often shocked. People come and they tell me the pain that they've gone through, the circumstances going through in my life, and my heart sinks. And I don't know what to say. And you don't need to have eloquent words with the pain or the struggles that you're going through. You have access to God. And so often, when I don't know what to say or what to pray, I pray one word. I just say, help. Jesus, help. You don't have to have eloquent words. He knows what's happening in your heart. You can come with your pain. You can come with your struggle. And he'll hear you. Sometimes a false barrier has to do with the wrong idea of identity. That we're somehow individuals that can't come to him. That it's, so, it's for an elite group. In the old church, there was an elite group that came to God in prayer. But we can come exactly who we are. Ephesians 2.19 You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens of God's people and also members of his household. 
at, at, at ICA Kiev, we had people from about 40 nations, and we all had different color passports, right? Some people wanted our nice blue ones, and some people wanted the red ones, and everybody wanted different colored passports than the one that they had. But here's the thing. Our citizenship had nothing to do with our passports. Who we are, first and foremost, is we are children of God and part of the kingdom of God. And that allows us to come, come boldly into the presence of God. We don't have to go to a priest and ask him to pray for us. John Wycliffe puts it this way. Private confession was not ordered by Christ and was not used by the apostles. The early church didn't do it. John Wycliffe said we shouldn't do it. And he fought for every man's accessibility to God in prayer. The second course correction that he fought for had to do with accessibility to grace through faith. Not through any works, through faith alone. The church's power over salvation often was the most powerful thing in society. That in order to be saved, it was through the church and the church alone and through the works that were expected by the church. And you had to come in and and receive it from them. We know today, as we look at the Word of God, that it is by faith we are saved, not by works, so that none of us can boast. But yet there's always their sense that we have to do more in order to gain favor. The church put that upon the people. You have to do more. You have to be more. Expect more. Ephesians 2.18, or Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says it this way, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Romans 5.13, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. I was standing by the bedside of a good friend in those last days of hospice, as the family was surrounding the, the bed, she was laying there unconscious, taking her last breaths, as we together, as, a, as the family and, and I, her pastor, prayed. And one of the daughters spoke up in those moments and said, she was so good. She was so good, there's no way that God can say no to her. She'll be okay because she was such a good person. Now, it was by no means my opportunity to make a theological admonition at that point. (laughs) There's not enough good we can do. There's not enough good we can do. Good doesn't do it. There's not some level of, uh, you know, scales in heaven. Oh, we're really close this way. Oh, you're really, there's no scale is just simply by faith that we receive grace. The early church had put some barriers to grace through faith. The first had to do with indulgences. This being probably the biggest thing that Martin Luther would fight against in his 95 thesis. The very thought that you can pay your way out of suffering. Pay your way out of eternal damnation. You give enough, you get out. You do enough, you get out. What a heaviness, especially if you don't have money. 
Probably felt really good if you did have money. Right? And you can imagine the power of that theology within the church because indulgences built the big buildings. Right? They built the big buildings and the, the priests had lots of money. And John Wycliffe said, no, no, no. What it means to be a priest is you need to be on the street with the people. It's not about the building. John Wycliffe put it this way. It is plain to me that our prelates in granting indulgences do commonly blaspheme the wisdom of God. Strong words. Also, another barrier became penance. That we needed to somehow pay a penalty in ourselves for the things that we've done. So much so that the early church believed in what's called asceticism. That sin was actually attached to our physical flesh. It was a duality of personhood. That there was a spiritual component of our lives and a fleshly component of our lives. And in that duality... Sin attached itself to our flesh. And so the only way you get rid of the penalty of sin and the propensity of sin is somehow to put out the penalty on our bodies. And so great weights were put upon people's backs to go on pilgrimage long distances and to suffer. And somehow through that physical suffering, God would give you grace. Even so far as as to cut your body, to try to bring it into physical submission. What a heaviness. What a pain. John Wycliffe would say, no. You can come straight to God through grace. Just by faith. And you don't have to do all those things. There's a strong emphasis upon confession in those early days. That if you come, you confess. If you come, and, and we'll tell you how much penance you have to pay. We'll tell you how much indulgences you have to pay. Now, we do see some, some promising scriptures around confession. In fact, one that is, is quoted quite often is in James chapter 5, verse 6. I'm, I'm sorry, verse 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. We do that. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call on the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. We do that. And the prayer offered in faith will make a sick person well, and the Lord will raise him up, and if they have sinned, will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The scriptures often pertain to the healing of the body, but I actually believe that it has more to do with the healing of the heart. Confession isn't about forgiveness of sins, that confession allows us to find forgiveness through a priest or through an intermediary, but confession is part of the healing of us ourselves. Finding support and finding that prayer together is unifying around being healed in there. So accessibility... To prayer, accessibility, to grace were things that were not easily found, but they needed a course correction. And probably the greatest component that John Wycliffe would be known for is accessibility to the Word of God. At that point, 
The Bible was only in Latin. The common person spoke Middle English in, in uh, London, in England. They had no access to actually the Word of God except for what was spoken in services that they did not even understand. And John Wycliffe says, that doesn't make sense. And so he became the fighter for the Word of God for the common man. And in fact, he was the first person to translate the Bible from the Latin Vulgate into common English. took him 10 months with scribes with him. Now you can imagine 10 months to do one, but his followers would continue on and be writing them in the common English. So the common person could come to the church and have access to the Word of God. Can you imagine going centuries and not even having the Word of God to something to be looking at, something to be praying over, something to have access to? Totally not a part of our lives. John Wycliffe would put it this way. The gospel alone is sufficient to rule the lives of Christians everywhere. Any additional rules made to govern men's conduct added nothing to the perfection already found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was probably not real popular with the early church. Holy Scripture is the highest authority for every believer, the standard of faith, and the foundation for reform. And finally, the laity ought to understand the faith. And since the doctrines of our faith are in the Scripture, believers should have the Scripture in a language familiar to the people. And to this end, the Holy Ghost endued them with the knowledge of all tongues. He was advocating for us to have a Bible. And we have them everywhere. It would be uh, another 150 years before Gutenberg would actually make the first press. The Gutenberg Bible would be made because of that first press. 1611 is when we get our King James Version Bible. That was the most commonly distributed Bible for centuries. And now, man, I can't even tell you how many translations are out there. Thousands. I brought my phone up here for a reason. Pastor Mark asked me to do this. Do you have your Bible on your phone? There is an app that's called the YouVersion app. It comes out of Life Church. They do it all for free. And it is a great resource. It is wonderful. It has reading plans on there. Uh, it has daily verses that they'll send to your email. If you don't have it, please download it. It's a good resource. It's a wonderful resource for all of us. But I wonder about the accessibility we have to the Word of God. My Bible, my Bible is different than this because I'm old. This, is, this was my Bible that my dad bought me 32 years ago. I was leaving for Trinity Bible College in North Dakota in, in uh, August in my Pontiac Sunbird. That tells you how old I am right there. And it was a pretty new potty. <laughs> um, and, and in July, my dad says, let's go buy you a new Bible. And I don't know if I even love this one. But it's 32 years with this one, right? It's the Life Application Bible, which I've always thought that the notes in the NIV Study Bible is a little bit better, at least a little bit more technical. And this one's a little more touchy-feely, right? I'm not really touchy-feely all the time. I like the fact that it was a single column, and that's probably why I bought it more than anything else. But I have memories associated with this book. First um, Corinthians has so many grape juice stains on it from doing communion hundreds of times, right? 
Uh, I can tell you exactly where a verse is on a page, even if I don't know the verse. And it's about three-quarters of the way down on the right-hand side. Because it has become a friend to me. Now, this one's semi-retired. Pages have started falling out, so I said, it's, you're semi-retired. Um, the new Bible that I'm using is a note-taking Bible because uh, a friend of mine started doing something years ago and told me about it, and I said, I'm going to steal that. And he is writing, there's a, notes on both sides of the Bible. He is writing on the sides his own personal commentary on the verses, and he's going to create one for every grandkid that he has. And so he says, it takes me about a year to do it, and then uh, I will give that to the, my grandkids, and then I'll make another one for the next. Uh, now, my kids aren't even married, but I figured I need to start now because that's a lot of work. But I often think about what is our relationship to Scripture today? If we really do believe that the Word of God is our source for faith and practice, is it a part of our lives? I really challenge you around this, that the Word of God needs to be far more important than anything that the church comes up with. The old church had every good intention. Those early centuries had great intentions, but they drifted, right? The Word of God is what keeps us on course. It doesn't matter if the church comes up with an idea. It doesn't matter. In fact, Scripture says if an angel comes in the room and tells you something, don't believe it if it comes contrary to the gospel. The Word of God should be cherished by our, all of us, should be a part of our lives. And though John Wycliffe gave us these amazing course corrections that eventually was picked up by Luther, now we are part of an overriding group that protested, that's why we're Protestant, protested these limitations and said it should be accessible to the common man, to the priesthood of believers. But though we have accessibility to prayer and though we understand our accessibility to grace through faith and though we are surrounded on every side by the word of God, I think to a certain extent, in today's modern world, those things have become white noise. We have so much information. We have accessible to just about anything we want in this little black box that I have sitting up here. Did you know that, do you know that today, during church, you can go on your phone and go to MIT Freeware? And you can take every single course provided by one of the best universities in the United States for free. You're not going to get the degree. But you can go on and you can watch. You can take all the classes. You can get the education for free. Now, I, I've done it. I, I, it was like a foreign language to me, right? <laughs> Some computations class. I thought, oh, I'll take that. Lasted about 15 minutes. So often because we have so much access, access to God, access to his word, we just kind of take it for granted. And what we've been blessed with in accessibility, we have turned to with indifference. 
the things of God grow dust to our social media. Or to what I think is the greatest struggle of the church today, and that is the Western culture of time. Where, I don't know if, you, if you're like me, there seems to be fewer hours in the day today than there were 10 years ago. Why is that? Maybe I nap more? Probably. But we've turned to the beauty of prayer and the fact that we know we can come to God, yet we don't. We come to the beauty of grace and the accessibility we have to it through faith. And we live however we want because we know it's there. We come to the Word of God, and it's maybe something, well, it's not even picked up anymore because it's on our phone. It's great that it's on our phone. But let's be careful to not allow all that is available to us for us to turn our backs on the beauty of what God has offered to us, a beautiful relationship with Him.